I am so excited this morning. I've been waiting for this day for a long time. Todd has uh, allowed me the opportunity, the privilege, and the honor of introducing uh, our most special guest speaker today. And uh, I just want to say welcome to his family. Um, Philip Del Rey is a dynamic person. I met Phil back in, uh, I think it was 1990, somewhere in there. Uh, we worked together at a, at, for a company up in Chicago for about three years. And in that time, I was so inspired by Philip. I was a baby in Christ at that time. I'd just gotten saved, and, and Phil was an inspiration to me. He doesn't even know how much. And um, ever since then, we've stayed in touch throughout the years. And I support his ministry. And I'll tell you why. It's because I know that he's doing things for Christ. I know that souls are being won for Jesus through his ministry. It's an awesome ministry. And I'm so privileged to have him here today. We are privileged. You, you guys are in for a treat. Um, Philip, he has a book that he's written. It's called Jesus Christ, the Master Evangelist. It's now in its fourth printing. It's being used by missionaries and people all over the world. Philip has taught in Bible colleges and pastors' conferences all over the world. He teaches evangelism. And he teaches evangelism the way that Jesus did it and the way Jesus taught us to do it in the Bible. Um, Philip has been associated with Chuck Colson and the uh, Prison Fellowship Ministries. Uh, Philip is a chaplain at Cook County Jail in Chicago, one of the largest jails in the country. Chuck Colson has endorsed his book, um, and I am just privileged to welcome Philip Del Rey. As John mentioned, I am a chaplain at Cook County Jail, among other things that we do in our ministry. And not all that long ago, I uh, showed up at Cook County Jail's Division 11, which is called Super Maximum Security. And I walked into the building, and I have to take the elevator up to the third floor. I have to go to the security office to tell them that I'm here so that they can call the men down to chapel service. And that's just what it's like in chapel in Division 11, too. <laughs> I get up to the third floor. I get off the elevator. I'm walking towards the security office. And about 25 feet outside the office, I see a sergeant sitting at his desk that I have known for the last 15 years at the county jail. And for the last 15 years, every time this man sees me, he likes to test me. He likes to insult me. He likes to make fun of our God. And he likes to persecute me any way he can. He, they move from division to division and now apparently he's been moved to division 11. I'm approaching the office, I see him, he sees me. I walk in the room, he's a weightlifter, he stands up, he's got a white shirt on, there's two blue shirt officers in the corner. He stands up, he looks at me and he says, the Christians are here, call out the lions! 
I said, Sergeant, I'd like to remind you that it was the Roman government that was feeding Christians to the lions. That was 2,000 years ago. And we have the unique perspective of being able to look back over 2,000 years of recorded history and what do we see? I said, there are more Christians alive at this very moment than the entire population of the Roman Empire over its entire 500-year history, and the lions and the tigers are on the endangered species list. I said, we're not afraid of lions. Bring them on. He looked at the officers and they looked at him and their mouths were open. <laughs> and he said, call chapel. <laughs> when you're right about God and you're right with God, you never have to be intimidated by the world, the flesh, or the devil. And it's okay to get excited about Jesus. Amen? <laughs> The title of my sermon this morning is Mount Sinai, the greatest sermon ever preached. According to some statistics recently released by the Southern Baptist Convention, they say that 95% of people who identify themselves as evangelical Christians have never even attempted to lead another person to Christ, and 71% of them think it's wrong to interfere with another person's belief system. George Barna recently released some statistics to the effect that only 9% of people who identify themselves as Christians have a biblical world view. So what shall we do? Well, hangeth thou in there, brethren, and I will show thee. The word of God through the prophet Malachi says that the Lord does not change. For God to change, he'd either have to get better or worse. That's impossible. He's perfect. And everything that he created was perfect when he created it. In fact, the atomic structure of every element known to man in the periodic table is perfect to the atom and cannot be altered by one atom without completely changing the element itself. Water, for example, one molecule of water, as you all know, consists of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. Interestingly, if you separate the hydrogen from the oxygen, pure hydrogen is highly flammable. You've all seen pictures of the Hindenburg disaster. We also know that pure oxygen is highly flammable. But if you put the two together in a two-to-one ratio, you have a third substance with which you can use to extinguish a fire. Now, can you rationally understand that? Go like this. No! No, only the master chemist, only God himself can do such a thing. In fact, scientists in all their wisdom, there's not a scientist in the world who can even tell you how a brown cow can eat green grass and turn it into white milk. 
I suggest to you this morning that God is far more interested in redeeming the souls of men than he is in chemistry. All that to say this. There is one argument for Christianity that is more compelling than all of the scientific and the philosophical and the legal arguments combined. Before I say another word, I want you to know that I know, and I need to know that you know that I know, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, plus nothing. Our salvation, our good works, our changed attitudes, our good deeds are the result of our salvation, never the cause of it. Amen? Amen. How did we get the Bible? As holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But there's one part of the Bible that God so wanted to emphasize that it says in Exodus chapter 31, it says God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger. Mount Sinai represents the one and only time from Genesis to Revelation that God the Father descended upon this earth in his omnipotent state. It says that he descended upon Sinai in a cloud. And inside that cloud, God was a consuming fire. And because God is so awesome in power and in glory that no man can see him and live, so he covered himself with the cloud. He was preceded by an entourage of sight and sound that was so terrifying that when it was over, the Israelites begged Moses and they said, Moses, if he ever wants to talk to us again, you go talk to him and tell us what he said. Because one more manifestation of that kind of power and that kind of glory, and we will die. There was thunder. There was lightning. There was a loud trumpet blast, and it says the trumpet got louder and louder and louder. And as that cloud descended upon Mount Sinai, and we know Sinai is a solid granite rock mountain, it says the mountain began to be consumed, and the smoke was rising from Sinai like a furnace up to heaven. And it says the whole mountain began to quake. The ground was literally shaking under them as the eternal self-existent one descended upon this planet to speak to his people. And it says they were terrified. The question before us would be, why would God do such a thing to his own people? Why would God almost scare his own people to death? At the end of the story, it answers the question. It says, in order that the fear of God would remain with the people so that they might not sin. The reason I'm telling you that, all that to say this. Understanding the doctrine of sin is absolutely key to explaining the doctrine of God's grace in context. I'd like to demonstrate for you how I do this. And then I'd like to answer the question, is this really New Testament theology? I got a call one day from a window salesman. I was sitting in my study and the phone rang and this man, we were expecting him in the afternoon. 
And this man called and said, you know, I'm a little ahead of schedule. I'm a little early. I'm in the neighborhood. Is it okay if I come by now? I said, that'll be fine. Come on over. A few minutes later, I hear the kids in the living room. They were a lot smaller then. And I heard him say, he's here, he's here. <laughs> so I look out the window and uh, I see Bob get out of his car and he's, he's, he's staring at our house. He's studying our house. Any good salesman would like to get a quick view of our house because if he can learn a little bit about who we are, just maybe it might help him to establish a little rapport and it just might help him to improve his chances of making a sale. Nothing wrong with that, just good salesmanship. Well, our house is easy to read. There was a foot and a half high cross in the window outlined with white Christmas lights. And there's a car in the driveway and the bumper sticker says, study for your final exam, read the Bible. <laughs> so as I said, our house is real easy to read. I'm not making this up. This is exactly what he said. I came out to the side and I opened up the gate and when my eyes met his, he looked at me, I looked at him and he said, my dad was a Christian. I said, are you here from the window company? He said, and my sister was a missionary. I said, you are here from the window company. <laughs> yes, I'm Bob from ABC Window Company. He starts telling me all about his dad and his sister. Well, I enjoy a good sales presentation, so I hear him out. After about five minutes, I sensed that he was coming up for air, and I said, Bob, could we look at the window? Yes, of course. So he looks at the window that needs to be replaced and he comes back and he shows me the figure. He starts telling me more about his dad and his sister. After a minute of this, I finally said, uh, Bob, could I ask you a personal question? He said, sure. I said, uh, you've been telling me a lot about your dad and your sister. Where do you stand with God? He said, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> I got excited because I had a live one standing right in front of me in my own yard. So I said, oh, you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, well, Bob, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? He said, well, I'd go to heaven. I said, on what basis? He said, well, I'm a good person. I said, well, do you see your need of God's forgiveness? And he said, the classic answer, no, I've never murdered anyone. I said, well, I, I suppose if God compared you to Adolf Hitler, you'd probably compare very favorably. But is that the standard God is going to use? Is he going to compare you to the worst person who's ever lived and say, well, compared to him, you look pretty good. Come on in. He said, well, uh, no, I don't think so. I said, well, what standard is God going to use? And he said, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. That's when I really got excited. <laughs> I said, Bob, uh, I'm a chaplain at Cook County Jail, and there's 10,000 men locked up in that jail, and they're all charged with a crime. I said, if they're found guilty, they will be judged according to the law. 
I said, if you get, uh, if you get uh, caught by the man who wears the star and you're going 25 miles an hour over the speed limit, you too will be judged by the law. I said, Bob, do you want to know how you can know that the Ten Commandments were written by God and not by man? I said, if man wrote them, there'd be Ten Commandments and a thousand amendments. <laughs> well, he wasn't laughing. I said, Bob, the first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. But that commandment literally means... Stated positively, it means that you shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your strength. That would literally mean that from the day you were born till the day you die, you would never put anything before God. That would literally mean that you would have lived a life of perfect obedience, which is another way of saying sinless perfection. I said, no mere man has ever loved God like that. Now, if the greatest commandment in all the Bible is to love God, then the greatest sin cannot be murder. The greatest sin must surely be not to love the God who created you more than the things he created. I said, the second commandment is, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. I'm indebted to Ray Comfort for the next two illustrations. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. I've had many people say to me, well, my God is a God of love. He would never send anyone to hell. I agree with them. Their God never would send anyone to hell because their God doesn't exist. He's a God made in their own image. Yeah. The God of the Bible is a consuming fire who has a passion for justice and holiness and righteousness and truth who will by no means clear the guilty, but will hold every man accountable for every idle word that he speaks. The first commandment shows us who to worship. The second commandment tells us how, in spirit and in truth, that is, by faith and according to his word, the Bible. The third commandment is that thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. When a man hits his thumb with a hammer, he wants to express how he feels, and he doesn't feel very good. So he usually takes the name God or the name Jesus, the name above every other name, and he brings it down to the level of a four-letter curse word to express anger and disgust. I said, we didn't even despise Adolf Hitler's name enough to use his name. Instead, we take the name that's above every other name and use it to curse a man made in the image of God. To the ancient Jew who read that text, he dared not even speak the most holy name of God for fear of breaking that commandment because the commandment went on to say, he who takes my name in vain shall not go unpunished. The fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. The principle still lives in Sunday. We are to give the Lord one day out of seven, where we set aside all our worldly amusements and all our trying to better our position in this world and rest. And in that rest, acknowledge the God who created you, the God who sustains you, and the God who purchased your salvation with his own blood. Acts chapter 4 says God purchased the church with his own blood. The fifth commandment is to honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that all may go well with you. Yes. 
The reason our nation is in trouble is not because of gangs or guns or violence or any of the rest of it. Those things are only symptoms of the real problem. The real problem is the breakdown of the family. Churches are in trouble because families are in trouble. And families are in trouble because the men who head up those families have failed to take the role of spiritual leaders in their homes and train their children to love God. Abraham Lincoln said the strength of a nation lies in the homes of its people as goes the family, so goes the nation. The sixth commandment is thou shalt not murder. But Jesus giving us the spiritual interpretation of the letter of the law said, you've heard that it was said thou shalt not murder. He didn't say it is written. Interestingly, he said, you've heard that it was said. I take that to mean you've heard what the Pharisees have had to say about it. Now let me give you the real inside track on this. Let me show you how broad and how deep and how wide and how high this spiritual commandment really is. If you're even angry with your brother or you call him empty-headed or a fool, you're in danger of judgment and the fires of hell. That's what Jesus said. What he's talking about is unforgiveness. Murder begins in the heart as unforgiveness. And if you have someone in your life that you refuse to forgive, you are the one in bondage. And when you forgive that person, you are the one who gets set free. Interestingly, the number one psychiatric condition of people who are instituted into mental institutions is anger, all based on unforgiveness. The seventh commandment is thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus said, you've heard that it was said thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you even look upon another woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery already in your heart. That would include pornography, etc., etc. And that's where we broke eye contact. Bob was doing okay until then. And now his hands went in his pockets and he took a step back and his foot started grinding into the ground and he was looking around wondering why he was even here. <laughs> He'd forgotten he was a window salesman. The conviction of the Holy Spirit was upon him. John 16, 8 says, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Interestingly, that word convict in the Greek literally means to expose the hidden things and to chastise in a moral sense. The gospel is not intellectual. It's spiritual slash moral. He began to be convicted by the Spirit of God. I've seen many grown men break down in tears of repentance, brokenness. I've seen many a grown man break out in a cold sweat. I've seen many grown men begin to shake and tremble as they see themselves in the mirror of God's law, for many, in many cases for the first time in their lives. And they're seeing the standard 
that God alone established and it leaves them guilty. You have to be guilty before you can be saved. I said the eighth commandment is thou shalt not steal. I said how many times would you have to steal to be a thief? Well, the same number of times Adam and Eve had to eat the forbidden fruit to be found worthy of death. And the whole earth was cursed with a curse as a result of one simple act of disobedience. I heard a preacher last Sunday say, we're a lot worse than we think we are, but cheer up because you're accepted in the beloved and you're loved more than you could even begin to imagine. We're much worse than we think we are. If Adam and Eve were cursed because of what they did, where does that leave us? We're much worse than we think we are, but we are infinitely loved by Jesus Christ. That's law and grace. The ninth commandment is thou shalt not lie. Well, how many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? The answer? Just one. Same number of people you have to kill to be a murderer. Just one. Revelation 21 says all liars will have their place in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. If you're born once, you're going to die twice. But if you're born twice, you're only going to die once. The tenth commandment is thou shalt not covet. That doesn't sound too bad. Well, Colossians chapter 3 says covetousness is idolatry and idolatry is rival worship which is an abomination to God. Covetousness is what wars are made from. It was covetousness that caused Lucifer to become Satan. He was not content with what he had so he coveted the throne of God. It was covetousness that caused Adam and Eve to desire to become like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. It was covetousness that caused the Pharisees to murder the son of the living God. Covetousness is idolatry. The opposite of covetousness is learning to be content with what you have. Interestingly, contentment is something that's learned. I said, Bob, do you see your need of God's forgiveness? And he hung his head and he said, yes. You see, when you explain the gospel in context, the gospel of God's grace now makes sense. When, to tell a man he's a sinner without telling him what sin is, is to tell a man he's under arrest without telling him what he's charged with. It's wrong. It's immoral to apply, imply that he's done something wrong and he needs God's grace without telling, telling him exactly what it is that he's done wrong. The most loving thing you can say to another human being is tell him exactly what it is that we've done to offend the holy God. So grace will make sense. Does this make sense? Yes. You want to you know how you get forgiven, Bob? He said, yes, I do. I said in the Old Testament, they used to have to bring an animal. And the animal had to be without spot and without blemish. If it was a black goat, it had to be 100% black. If it was a white lamb, it could not have a speckle of another color. It had to be without spot and without blemish. 
The spot was inherited. If it had one, it was born that way. The blemish was acquired. All of this is a 1,500-year-old object lesson representing the fact that God can only accept a perfect sacrifice. The spot and the blemish represented sinless perfection. When the Virgin Mary was impregnated by the Spirit of the living God, what was begotten nine months later was the Lamb of God that Peter referred to as the Lamb of God without spot and without blemish. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was born without the original stain of sin that you and I inherited from our fathers going all the way back to Adam and Eve. Jesus was born without spot. And because Jesus obeyed the law perfectly, Jesus never even entertained a sinful thought. Jesus was tempted by the devil himself. But Jesus never even entertained a sinful thought. He lived a life of sinless perfection. So when Jesus died on the cross, a thousand years before that, the psalmist in Psalm 85 says, justice and mercy have kissed. Justice and mercy have been reconciled. Surely that had to point to the cross of Christ when God's perfect justice, sin was judged and punished. A life was given, a perfect life was given, and God's perfect mercy were reconciled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So how does his death on the cross 2,000 years ago, how does that apply to me? When I got engaged to be married, we were in the Chicagoland area, and my future in-laws lived in Nevada, and I wanted their blessing. So my wife went out to Nevada, and two weeks later, I flew to Nevada right on time. I showed up at their door, I knocked on the door, and they let me in. They made me a nice dinner. We had a few hours of conversation. That night they said, help yourself to anything in the house. They showed me to my own private bedroom. And the next day, my mother-in-law handed me the keys to the car. And she said, you're going to need to get around. So here's the keys to the car. Can you imagine if I would have knocked on the wrong door and said, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I want to marry your daughter, and I want to sleep here tonight, I want to drive your car. <laughs> the sandwich might have been achievable, but the rest would have been out of the question. <laughs> I knocked on the right door. John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the door. I came in the right name, in this case was Susan... But Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that name is Jesus Christ. I came to the right door. I came in the right name. I came with the right motive which was love. We love God because he first loved us. We come to God in the name of Jesus with a brokenness. And a love because it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. 
And when we come to the, to the living God in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, because not because of a religion, not because you got baptized, not because you can quote the Bible or teach Sunday school, but because you have a personal, living, breathing, intimate, growing, exciting, personal love relationship with Jesus Christ, the word says we are accepted in the beloved. And someday everything he won on the cross, he's going to share with his body, the church of Jesus Christ. That's the whole gospel, law and grace. And one doesn't make sense without the other. Is this really New Testament theology? In Matthew chapter 19, the rich young ruler comes to the son of the living God and says, what must I do to be saved? You're in the school of evangelism now. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus Christ, the master evangelist, says, well, you know the commandments. He says, he starts with number six. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. He backs up to number five and says, honor your father and your mother. He omits the tenth, which is thou shalt not covet. The rich young ruler says, all these things I've done since I was a youth. What am I still lacking? Jesus says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And the rich young ruler walked away and it says right in the text, it uses the word because he had great wealth. What was Jesus doing? Rather than quoting the 10th commandment, I don't think he forgot it. He omitted it purposely. Rather than quoting the text, he applied the text directly to this man's heart and he asked a covetous person to do something a covetous person cannot do. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. What was he doing? He was showing this man that his goods were his gods in clear violation of the first, the second, and the tenth commandments. Jesus illustrated and applied the text without having to quote it. Jesus only had to use one. I have to use all ten. The woman at the well, John chapter 4. It's high noon. God is in a human body, so he gets hot and thirsty. He comes to the well. He says to a Samaritan woman, woman, give me a drink. She looks at him and says, I can't believe you're even talking to me. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan and a woman at that. And Jesus says, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd be asking me for a drink. And she says, you don't even have anything to dip with. And this is a deep well. Jesus says, he who drinks of the water that you give shall thirst again, but he who drinks of the water that I give shall never thirst again, but it shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And she says, give me some of that water. This is hard work. She's talking about H2O. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. She's, she says, give me some of that water. He says, go call your husband. She says, I have no husband. He says, you are correct, madam. You've had five. And the man you are living with now is not your husband. And she brilliantly comes back with, I perceive that thou art a prophet. 
Rather than quoting the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, he was asking a promiscuous person to do something an adulteress could not do. Why does Jesus go around asking people to do things he knows they can't do? He's got a plan. He's going somewhere with this. One chapter earlier, John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes by night and says, We know you're from God. No man could do the things that you're doing unless God were with him. And Jesus says, You must be born again. There he goes again. Nicodemus said, I can't do that. You want me to go back into my mother's womb and be born again? I can't do that. The only way you can understand what Jesus meant to this man is to understand this man's mindset. To understand his worldview, he was a Pharisee. He was a Jew. He was born a Jew, born under the law, trained in the law as a rabbi, and now a Pharisee. And this man thinks his salvation is in the fact that he's a law-abiding Jew. He thinks he's an in-law when in fact he's an outlaw and the very law that he thinks will save him is the very law that will condemn him. So Jesus says, you've got to be born all over again. He was referring him to the whole understanding of law and his misunderstanding of trying to be saved by obeying the law. Romans 3.20 says, we're in the New Testament now, Romans 3.20 says, For by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In Romans 3.31 he said, Do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. The dispensation of grace did not do away with the moral law. Jesus himself said so. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. He meant his death. In Romans 7, 7, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was had the law not said, do not covet. Saints, in Galatians 3.24, why does Paul write the book of Galatians? Because the Christians, the church is alive and well, teaching this doctrine of salvation by grace alone. And the Jew, to the Jews, this is a stumbling block. So the Jews are, are, are willing to compromise and they're saying, all right, all right. If you could just become a Jew first... If you could just become circumcised first, maybe we could live with this doctrine of grace. And in Roman, in Galatians 3.24, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore the law has become our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. You can't add one thing to grace. As soon as you add one thing to grace, it's no longer grace, it's works. So the key to understanding the book of Galatians, the key verse is Galatians 3.24, telling us what the real function of the law was and is. Finally, in the back of the book, in 1 John 3.4, John now says, whoever commits sin transgresses the law for sin is the transgression of the law. 
There are two kinds of people in the world, the saints and the ain'ts. You're either a saint or you're an ain't. Of the ain'ts, there are only four basic varieties. The first ain't is the person who thinks that he is saved because of his religion and I don't care what religion it is. That is the person who thinks he's right with God because he is religious. And they are some of the most dangerous, self-righteous, judgmental, arrogant people you will ever meet. That was covered in John chapter 3. That was Nicodemus, the religionist. There's another kind of ain't out there who thinks he's saved because God will not reject him because after all, I'm a good person. He thinks he's a good moral person. He's comparing himself to the people he hears about on the news and thinks compared to him, I'm not such a bad person. Surely God will overlook a few minor faults. That was the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. The third kind of ain't is the flaming sinner who is completely oblivious to the ultimate destruction that awaits him if he dies without mercy and enters a Christless eternity. That was the woman at the well, a flaming sinner. And Jesus clearly used the law on all three of those ain'ts. But there's a fourth kind of an ain't, and I meet these people more often than the average person would because I work in jails and prisons. The fourth kind of an ain't is the person who is under condemnation, who thinks that his or her life has been so bad that God himself either cannot or will not forgive him. That was the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. They throw her at his feet and say, the law demands her stoning. And Jesus says, you're absolutely right. Let he who is without sin among you throw the first stone. The oldest and the wisest walks away first until they're all gone. And he looks at the woman and he says, where are those who condemn you? And she said, there are none, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. If you meet a person who is under condemnation, you would not want to use the law on that person. They don't need any more condemnation. They don't need any more guilt. The only thing standing in between that person and eternal life with Jesus Christ is a crystal clear understanding of grace. Amen? Amen? Jesus gave her grace. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He could read her heart. He knew that she was truly, deeply broken and repentant. All you need there is a crystal clear understanding of grace. I'll leave you with one more story. In Luke 16... Lazarus and the rich man. They're in eternity. And the rich man says to Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger to cool my tongue, for I am in, I am in torments in these flames. And the answer comes back, there's a great gulf fixed between us that no man can cross. So he appeals again. And he says, well, I have five brothers back there. Please go send someone to tell them so they don't have to come to this place of torment. And the answer comes back. 
This is all in red. This is Jesus telling the story. The answer comes back. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the man appeals one more time and the answer comes back. If they won't hear Moses, neither would they believe if someone came back from the dead to warn them of the judgment to come. What's he talking about? Moses. Moses has been gone for 1,500 years. Romans 2.15 says, The law is written on every man's heart. What law? Every man from the beginning of time till the end of the world, whether or not he has ever even heard of Jesus or even seen a Bible, Knows in his heart, it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to have another man's wife, it's wrong to jealously desire what belongs to another man, they know it's wrong to dishonor their mothers, and every man knows there's a God in heaven. That's how we can know that the Ten Commandments were written by God and not by man. That's how we can know that the Ten Commandments are still for today because that is the one thing that you have in common. If a natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned, how then do I communicate with an unregenerate person? Simple. There's one thing, there's one spiritual seed in his heart and that is the law of God. Now the gospel will make sense. The story in Luke 16, Matthew Henry said of that story, only a fool would think any method of conviction better than the one God has chosen and appointed. I thank you for allowing me to come here this morning. It's been a great privilege. Thank you, Pastor Todd.